Let's pray together. Father, we do so desire that your word and the preaching of the word and our obedient response to the word would all work together to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Father, we believe that your word is quick and that it's powerful and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces and it does a work inside us. That the Holy Spirit takes your word and that that's how you speak to us. And that you transform us through the power of the word. So would you give us ears to hear, Lord? We do so desire to walk with Christ and to grow in grace and and to apply the word of God to our lives. and, And yet we are so easily scummed up and barnacled by the things of this world, and we pick up the the drag and the sludge. Would you use your word as a purifying, transforming agent to clean us, to grow us? And most of all, may we see Christ high and lifted up today through the preaching of the word this Palm Sunday. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Oh, you can picture, can't you, the delight on the faces of young boys and girls as they hear the sirens in the distance and and they can hear the cadence of the marching bands and there's going to be a parade. And they're running down the block. They want to get up to the sidewalk. They want to see the parade. Do you remember that feeling? It it took me back as I was thinking about that uh, to about 1967, 68, uh, when I was just an elementary school boy, seven or eight years old. And and on, on a Sunday afternoon in the spring, um, we would be outside after lunch, and all of a sudden, one of our neighborhood boys, this is the suburbs of South Chicago, uh, one of the boys would yell, it's the motorcycle parade, and you could hear the, the rolling thunder of the straight pipes of, the, of these gangs and all these guys with their, their um, uh, just their fixed up Harleys and big bikes, and this huge motorcycle parade would go by right on 147th Street South, right past our house, and it would last for a long time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of motorcycles heading down about a mile or two to the great cathedral of St. Christopher's Catholic Church where they were going to receive the blessing of the trail. You know, St. Christopher, he's the patron of, of safe travels. And they believed that uh, the priest could give them a special grace with some holy water and, and that they would be safe on their motorcycles. And unfortunately, they did not recognize that St. Christopher had no power um, to intercede on their behalf, but that they had one named Jesus Christ who indeed could do that. But as young boys, we ran up there, man. We loved that parade. We loved it and we watched and it was great and it was so loud. Sometimes we would hold our hands over our ears. I think that's a little bit the feeling that we get when we turn to Matthew chapter 21. There's a parade and everyone's excited and there's so much noise and it's a cacophony. And maybe even the young children have their hands over their ears as people are shouting. Let's read the account. It's the traditional triumphal entry account, and we find it in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. And, and it, uh, it is our Lord entering Jerusalem, this, this most unusual king coming in in this upside-down kingdom that is so misunderstood. Now let's read what Matthew gives us as his account. It might be of interest to you to know that this event is recorded in all four of the Gospels. 
Not all of the ministries and teaching of Christ is recorded in all of the Gospels. Um, For example, a, a most notable event, the stories of Mary and Joseph and the birth of our Lord, you know we only find that in Matthew and Luke. Um, John talks about the incarnation, but in spiritual terms, um, and doesn't give the physical details. And so only two of the four Gospels, for example, give the account of our Lord Jesus Christ and his birth at his incarnation. Um, and so as you read the gospel, uh, Gospels, you'll find it helpful to keep that in mind. And if you have a study Bible, you'll notice the cross-references or the captions at the headings of sections of verses. And sometimes it will give you the verses or the passage where in the other Gospels it gives that account. In this particular account, it's in all four Gospels. And the value of it is that you receive that, that perspective. Of, of, a, of eyes that saw these events from different angles and it sheds light and it helps us compare the details and the unfolding of the chronology of the ministry of our Lord. So they're coming into uh, the nearness of Jerusalem. Our Lord has been telling his disciples for some days now in very specific ways that it is my time to go to Jerusalem. We know from the account of the triumphal entry in John's gospel, and that's chapter 12. We may or may not have time to look at it here together, but it's worth noting that it's in John chapter 12. And as we read this passage, it's helpful for us to realize two things out of that passage in John 12. Number one, that the disciples didn't get it. It says in John's 12, in John's account, it says that it wasn't until after his glorification, that would be the resurrection and his ascension, and that the Holy Spirit comes and enlightens their minds, and that these things fall into place, and then they begin to understand, and they have that aha moment. Oh, that's what was going on. But they didn't get it, even though, as we're going to see in a few minutes, our Lord specifically told them exactly why he was going to Jerusalem in no uncertain terms. The second thing that's interesting uh, that sheds light as we read Matthew's account that we pick up in John's gospel in chapter 12 is that part of the reason at least that the crowd gathered was that it wasn't that long before this time of coming to Jerusalem that our Lord had done that most stunning and amazing miracle where he had called forth his friend Lazarus from the grave. Do you remember that one? It's John's gospel in chapter 11, and then in John chapter 12 is where John tells us that part of the reason the people were following Jesus is that A, they wanted to see Lazarus, and B, they were hoping to see Jesus do something like that again. Not a bad deal. I mean, they knew that Lazarus was dead, right? And, and in those classic words of the King James Bible, remember Jesus stood there weeping at his tomb and he asked them to roll the stone away and remember what they said King James said but Lord he stinketh that's pretty clear you don't want to open this tomb he's dead and then Lazarus come forth what a moment what a moment for Mary and Martha the reunion they had for this time is amazing and that's where Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life He that believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And we'll be focusing on the realities of the resurrection next Sunday morning. But just realize that as we put the accounts together from the Gospels, that 
Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. This is heading into the final Passion Week, the final week where Jesus is going to end up on the cross. And so we've had three years of ministry when Jesus started out his public ministry, turning the water into wine at Cana, and then three years of healing the blind, raising the lame, raising the dead, walking on water, calming the sea, unlimited bread for the crowd to eat, all of these just amazing recorded miracles for us. And this has gone on and he's gathered the disciples around him. He's been pouring his life into them and training them for the last nearly three full years. And then right at the end, some miracles like Lazarus, the crowd is really up about Jesus right now. And they just really think this is great. And they're following him because they want to see the circus. He's a celebrity right now. They don't understand at all what's happening. Let's read Matthew's account. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, Bethphage, by the way, is a small community outside of Jerusalem that they are uncertain today of its exact location, probably not a very big burg, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied... And a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. It's a a great moment where the disciples must have looked at each other and acknowledged, how did he know that? And we have a demonstration here, don't we? Even in his humanity of his omniscience, his all-knowingness, of his omnipotence as they bring an unbroken colt, throw their coats flappingly over this colt and he mounts it and rides it. Uh, Some believe that the reason that the mare was brought along was to help keep the colt quiet. But I would say the one who created the colt with a word could keep the colt calm with a word. And uh, so there's also that interesting moment that you think about where the disciples were sent up into the neighborhood and uh, Jesus told them right where to go and get their cold and they go up and they evidently don't even ask for it. They untie it and are hauling it away. And the guys up on the back porch realize that their animals are being taken. Hey, what's going on? Hey, hey, hey. Just say the Lord needs your stuff today. It's a good lesson for us, isn't it? To hold loosely to our stuff It could be that, doesn't tell us in the text, but it could be that Jesus knew that those were believers, those were Christ followers, and that all they needed to hear was the name Jesus. And you've got a free ticket to anything I have. It's the way believers are supposed to live, isn't it? You need my stuff, Jesus? Jesus hath need of your stuff. Oh, okay, no problem. No problem. So there's some great little moments in the story. And and, uh, so this... Though we recognize by Matthew's account, verse 4, and others, this took place, back to verse 4, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That prophet is Zechariah. It's Zechariah chapter 9 where that prophecy was proclaimed many years before. And the disciples also, not only are they witnessing his omniscience, his omnipotence, uh, his ability to, to just speak and people follow, but they're witnessing the reality of the unfolding of prophetic scripture right before their very eyes. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. That's a great little verse. 
To do what Jesus asks even when I'm not really sure what's going on. Verse 7, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Quoting the psalmist. It's interesting to note in verse 9, you pick up from the language as well as the parallel accounts in other Gospels and the crowds that went before him and followed him. It's like there were multiple crowds. There were the people that were already there. And that reminds us that on this occasion, our Lord is entering Jerusalem at the time of, of the Feast of Pentecost and excuse me, of, of Passover, and that, um, that all of the surrounding uh, communities have gathered there at Jerusalem, and based upon historical records, extra-biblical historical records and census that have been made in these early, this earliest century years, um, they know that at some of these gatherings, they actually know uh, the, the number of Animals that were sacrificed for part of the Passover feast and the Passover time together. And it's in the hundreds of thousands. And based upon that, uh, there is speculation. It's a broad range of speculation uh, by Bible commentaries and Bible students that there could have been somewhere around a quarter of a million extra people in town, up to over a million, even pushing two million extra people gathered there for this most important time of celebrating the Passover when the blood was shed and the the death angel passed over. And our Lord, in just a few days, you know, is going to be in the upper room. And that's when he's going to institute the bread and the cup, the Passover meal. So that's why they're there. And that's why the crowds are there. And and you see that the crowd has almost two parts to it. You can pick up on that. And the crowds that went before him. Uh, so those are the those are the guys running up the street, hearing the sirens in the in the marching band. Let's go! There's something going on. And those who were following him, that maybe is a reference to to the account in John's Gospel of those who were the curiosity seekers who were watching for another amazing miracle that you don't want to miss. Well, the the emotions are high. Let's finish the account and. They're shouting Hosanna. That means save us now. And it gives us a clue to the mindset of the crowd. Hosanna, save us now. Save me, I pray. Save me from what? My sin? I don't think that's what they're thinking about. I think that they think, understanding at some level, knowing the Old Testament scriptures, what they would call the Bible... Knowing through the prophecies of old that Messiah would come and trying to put it all together, but wanting Jesus to do something for them right then and there that they longed for more than anything else, and that was the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem, freedom from Rome, and have their own king direct from the throne of David and that he would rule and reign. And in fact, in a minute, we're going to be reminded of that moment where even some of those closest to Jesus and the women, the, the mothers of James, mother of James and John come up to them, to him and say, oh Lord, when you sit on your throne, can't my boys be, you know, one on your right, one on your left? This would be a really great deal. They're really good guys. You'll, you'll like keeping them close. Thinking what? 
thinking that this is some kind of a political throne, thinking that the time has come for some kind of a literal overthrow of Rome and a literal establishment of an earthly kingdom, not even recognizing that that's not at all what our Lord had in mind right then. Now there is a day coming when he's going to come as King Jesus. And with the sword of his mouth, he's going to destroy all the enemies in a very physical, literal way. But this time he was misunderstood. Let's finish our passage. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. I'd like us to spring off of that question of the crowds because I think it's a good question. Who is this? And ask ourselves, what is this king like? What kind of a king is this? They said, behold, your king is coming to you, quoting Zechariah. And they recognized that something very significant was taking place in front of their eyes. And they thought they were going to get this, this immediate king because they longed to have a new president. They longed to have a new political system. They longed to have a new kind of justice in their country. And they thought this was their guy. Interesting, though, as we continue to think about it, that when Jesus doesn't live up to expectations... Many, no doubt, included in this very crowd, quoting the Psalms, crying out Hosanna, remembering the words of the prophet, will be screaming with barred teeth and clenched fists, give us Barabbas in just four or five days. Because this guy, he's not giving me what I want. I think there's a lesson there, isn't there, about disappointment in Jesus? And our response sometimes of trying to get Jesus to do what we want him to do. And then when he doesn't, I've just kind of had it with Jesus. Maybe you don't know what kind of king he really is. So I think that's a pretty important question. And I think that it can help us to just focus right on the scripture and to just receive from the scripture the setup to this whole deal. And so let's let our eyes go back to Matthew chapter 20, to the beginning, and we're going to just go through this extended passage of Scripture, and we're going to let the Scriptures speak for themselves, answering, who is this? What kind of king is this? He begins in chapter 20, is where we're just going to jump right in, recognizing now that this is the... This is the final days of the wrap-up of the public ministry of our Lord. And he's been teaching. Now, there is tremendous volume of our Gospels that will be made up of the teaching that goes on for the next week. I don't know if you realize how much content of the Gospel happened in the very last week, essentially, of his, of his earthly ministry before going to the cross. Significant amount. But as we let our eyes go to chapter 20, we're picking this up as the concluding teaching before they head to Jerusalem. And so this is what he's been teaching them. This is what he's been talking about. This is, a, this is an excellent example 
of the peculiar teaching of this most unusual king. Let's read this account because you might have forgotten it or maybe have never really paid much attention to it. It's really interesting text. It's a story. And this most unusual king is a storyteller and he talks about his most unusual kingdom. And in his most unusual kingdom, you're going to see that it's a story about the king's generosity. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, that's a sum of money, a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Let's just stop right there for a minute before we get to the punchline proper. Recognize what's happening. Our unusual king, the storyteller, is telling a story about his kingdom. It's it's illustrative of the kind of truth that this king wants you to understand so that you are not mistaken about what kind of king he is. And this story, remember, is a story that the listener would have completely and immediately identified with. It's a story about a man who owns a vineyard and he has a lot of property and At this time, he needs a lot of laborers, whether they're pruning or harvesting fruit, whatever it is, he needs a bunch of help right now. And so in this community, there was a place where you could go where common laborers would hang out early in the morning, even before dark, before daylight, they would begin to assemble and uh, he would send his foreman down there. He would go down there and they would hire people. And the, and the work day, the expected work day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., a 12-hour work day. And the accepted fee or payment for working for the day would be a denarius. It was a sum of money, a day's labor, a day's wage. And a denarius are almost synonymous terms. I'll give you a denarius. A denarius was considered a day's wage at this time. And it was acceptable. So they're hanging out, these pickers, these laborers, and that's what they do. And they need money today because they got to take it home to mama to feed the kids. They, they live day to day. And so the foreman comes through. They jump in the truck and off to the vineyards they go. And he takes them all. And they agree up front. Will you guys work for me? We will work for you. A denarius a day. A denarius a day. We're happy. Foreman's happy. Boss is happy. Work's getting done. Later that morning, it says, and and, uh, the third hour, that would be 9 o'clock, so 6 to 9. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he goes running down through there and he finds out that there's a bunch of other guys that have gathered that didn't get hired yet that day. He joins them in and look at, notice what the language is there. He just says, um, he went out, uh, they were standing idly in the third hour, verse 3. And he told them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So... They recognize that starting at nine o'clock, 
they don't go six to six, they're going nine to six. So whatever is right, they, they compute that the foreman, when it comes time to pay them at night, is just going to deduct the, the portion of the denarius that they didn't earn because they didn't work the first three hours. Well, this happens over and over again and going out again at the sixth hour. Now it's noon and there's another bunch of guys. And then it happens at the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. And he picks up a bunch. Come on, guys, come work for me. They never settle on the amount of pay. It's just it's going to be the right amount. The six o'clock guys in the morning, they know it's a denarius. And then verse six, at the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing there. They had not gotten hired. They hadn't been working. How come you, he said, nobody hired us today. We're just standing around and they would love to work. So they think I'll at least go work for an hour and get some pennies and maybe we can buy some bread for supper tonight. And so he says, you too go into the vineyard. And then evening comes, he calls his foreman and he calls the laborer, verse eight, to pay their wages. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Because he's going to pay them instead of the guys who've been there all day, who have done the most work, have been meant the most to the foreman, being front in, in the front of the line to get their pay. The boss tells the foreman, the owner tells the foreman, begin with those who've come at the 11th hour. He has a purpose, and I think his purpose is he wants the guys who've been there since 6 o'clock in the morning, who are standing in the back of the line, to hear what's going to happen. And so the first guys stand in line and they've been there just since five o'clock. It's now six o'clock. They've worked one hour. He says, pay their wages. End of verse eight, beginning with the last up to the first and then verse nine. And when, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received, whoa, 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 a denarius. I imagine that these guys are talking and they're tired and that it took a minute for the 11th hour guys to look in their hand and realize what they had. And then they start to grin. And the guys up the line are starting to realize that something special is going on here. And now when those hired came first, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. So down the line, no matter when they were hired all day long, they received a denarius until it gets to the back of the line. And it says, by then they figured out what was going on. And they're thinking to themselves, and they also have a big smile on their face because they realize that if the guys who came at five o'clock and worked one hour are going to receive a denarius, surely the boss is going to give me big money today. And he holds out his hand and he gets his denarius. Notice the response. And on receiving it, verse 11, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Hey, hey, what's your issue, man? When I picked you up at six o'clock this morning, you had a smile on your face when you got a job today and you got your denarius for the day. And it's kind of none of your business what I'm giving the five o'clock guys. We had a deal. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
So the last will be first and the first will be last. If you let your eyes go up to the last verse of chapter 19, I think that it probably is, a, is poor work on the chapter breakdown and that actually this story is supposed to be sandwiched with this parable that but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And then verse 16, it concludes, the parable concludes with the same statement, this proverb I said parable, maybe this proverb, so that the last will be first and the first will be last. It's an upside down kingdom. You know what kind of a, you know who this unusual king is? He's a king of, of a most unusual generosity. You know what the point of the story is? I have a kingdom. And everybody who comes into this kingdom is welcome. And when you come in, whether you've been here a long time and you've been carrying the weight and you've been leading the singing and you've been changing diapers in the nursery for 30 years and you've been teaching junior church and you've been witnessing and you laid the block on that wall right there and you, you planted the grass seed out in that field when those kids ruined it and you've been around here forever and then some guy in the 11th hour comes and this most unusual king opens up the doors and he opens up his arms to the kingdom and he says, Welcome! And you get the same thing that everybody else got in this marvelous kingdom. You see, when you listen to this king teach, you're not supposed to think of overthrowing Rome. You're supposed to think of a much greater issue that you have. You're supposed to think of a much greater kingdom that you're a part of. I think it's possible that somebody here thinks like this. You know, Pastor Van, you have no idea how long I've been living in the scum and the mire of my sin. And you have no idea. In fact, I'm not even comfortable being here. I don't belong here. You belong here. It's the 11th hour, man. It's the 11th hour. And the master will give you everything he's given everybody else. And when we step across the threshold of our eternal dwelling, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a place for, for you. Whether you came in at 6 or 9 or noon or 3 or 5. You got a room in the mansion, buddy. That's a great king. A most unusual king characterized by a most unusual generosity. Who cares who the president is? Who cares what the Romans are doing? And so Jesus, verse 17, now is going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. You know, it pretty much doesn't get much clearer than that, do you think? Do you realize this is the third time this unusual king has told them why they're going to Jerusalem? And don't miss the fact that he said, we are going to Jerusalem. You're in this with me and we're together. You can just turn the page back one page or two pages to, to chapter 17, by the way, and look at verse 22. And it's almost verbatim. It's very similar as they were gathering. Verse 22 of Matthew 17. They were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He used the word Gentiles, Roman soldiers, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. They understood at some level what he was saying, but they really didn't get it, get it. 
That was the second time that he told them. The third time was the passage we just read in 19. As they began to head up to Jerusalem, we must go to Jerusalem, not to overthrow Rome, but for me to become the ultimate Passover lamb. The first time you know about when Jesus told them uh, that's recorded for us, it's in chapter 16 of Matthew. And look at verse 21 of Matthew 16. It says here that Jesus foretells his death and resurrection is the caption of the paragraph. And verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised. This is the part of the story that you know well. As he says this to his disciples, verse 22 And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, he got the disciples together having a little Bible study with Jesus. And he's telling us what's going to happen. He says, hey guys, listen, you need to understand calls himself the Son of Man. That was the most common way Jesus referenced himself. It was an emphasis on his humanity, even though he was deity. Um, and he said, the Son of Man, and speaking of himself, I will be going up to Jerusalem soon, and there I will be delivered over, and I will be killed. But the third day I will rise again. Peter hears the killed part. And Peter says, Lord, can I have a word with you? Takes him off to the side, whispers in his ear and says, Lord, this must never happen. Peter never did get the point here because remember, he's the one flailing his sword and uh, hits the, whacks the ear off a of Caiaphas' servant or the pre, I don't remember if it was Caiaphas' ear or his servant. Anyway, ask Shupi afterwards, he'll tell you, or this Bible college student. But he's the one flailing the sword, right? And the guy ducks and he whacks off his ear. Peter's still saying, Lord, this can't happen to you. So, Lord, we're not going to let you get killed. That would be a major disappointment in our Jesus. Lord, if you get killed, we're not really sure who's in control. We don't like that. Lord, that would really fall far below our expectations for you. And Jesus looks at him. And he says, Peter... Get thee behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. What does he mean? He said, anytime a voice whispers in your ear and tells you not to fulfill the will and the word of God to you, it's the voice of Satan. It's God's will for him to be the Passover lamb. There is a greater schematic here that's being unfolded. There is a much greater kingdom that's being developed And this is a crucial element that there would be a meeting between God and man at the cross and that the intercessor would be Jesus Christ himself who alone could be the Passover lamb. So the second thing we see about this unusual king is that he spoke with an unusual prophetic clarity. Not only was he characterized by generosity, but he spoke with this prophetic clarity. Let's quickly finish up in chapter, 19, or chapter 20. We're trying to answer the question and have a little bit or better grasp based upon the unfolding of the very story itself. 
to answer the question of the crowd and maybe to answer a question that's in the crowd today. Who is this king? Who is this king? We enter this uh, interesting passage on leadership in some ways and servanthood in the kingdom or the church. Um, Matthew 20, 20, it's the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, that come up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? Verse 21, and she said to him, say, these, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. It's going to happen pretty soon, right? It's going to be have a palace with gold. It's going to be soldiers and stuff, horses, chariots, beautiful women fanning my sons and feeding them grapes. It's going to be really cool. The kingdom of this world? Jesus answered, see, you don't, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say, oh, we're able, Lord, we're able. Oh, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard about it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. This is a different kind of kingdom, boys. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Wait a minute. I'm not in it for this. I'm the kind that really likes to have a servant. You know, it's my personality. It's just like a personality thing. I like servants. I don't like being a servant. What are you talking about, Jesus? Come on. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Verse 28. Here it is. Even as the Son of Man, there's his self-description again, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this unusual king, number three, sets the standard for a most unusual humility. You know what kind of humility this was, right? Paul referenced it in Philippians chapter 2. That he was so humble... That he who spoke the worlds into existence, that he who Paul wrote to the Colossian believers in chapter 3 said that if he doesn't pay attention, everything that is held together by him would come apart. He holds everything together just by his own will today. It's the reason the sun comes up in the right spot, because Jesus holds it together. It's one of his roles. Most people don't believe that, but it's really true. That's why he can shake the earth anytime he wants. He's the one who holds it. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 that this one, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, the one who created the chromosomes and the DNA and the vascular system and the, and the brain matter and the eyeballs and the ugly hair on the back of the Roman soldier's hand, he created them. He let them pound nails into his hands here at the end of this week. He was such a servant that he became, he humbled himself born of a virgin and became obedient even unto death. He's the model of the ultimate servant in this incredible, unusual kingdom characterized by an unusual, remarkable humility. We move on and we have to wrap up. We're getting close. 
And so they went out of Jericho and a great crowd followed him. So this is just a short span of time and they're moving down the road and they go out of Jericho and they're heading to Jerusalem and here's that great crowd followed him. Remember, we're going we're gonna to see that in uh, verse 9 of chapter 21 in the triumphal story that we already read and referenced that and they followed him shouting Hosanna and behold, there at Jericho, a great crowd follow him and they're going to get part of what they want. He's going to do something really great here. Here's where the parallel accounts come in in the other Gospels. And um, Bartimaeus is this blind man that's sitting by a road. Matthew account, Matthew's account gives it that there were two guys. And I take it he was there. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And look at verse 31. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And, and it's just great. You got these two blind guys. They can't see. They hear Jesus is coming and they start crying out. And notice what they ask. Lord, have mercy. The crowd says, Shh, be quiet. Get and marginalize these guys. Get that out of here. You don't fit in this kingdom. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Not only that, notice what they're asking for. They're just asking for mercy. Lord, have mercy. Look what Jesus turns to them and says. And stopping verse 32, Jesus called to them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? You know, overthrow Rome. Give us a new president. Get us a better food system. Better jobs. Stabilize the monetary system. Build up the military. Restore our national pride. That's what the crowd's hollering about. And he says, these guys, they've got it together. Why? Because they have a problem. And they don't care who's the president and they don't care anything. All they know is that they're blind and they heard Jesus is there and that he can make them see. And so they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. That's a pretty good prayer. You know that? Lord, would you just open my eyes? Because I am so stinking blind to your kingdom. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately They recovered their sight and followed him. I wonder if the crowd cheered and clapped. Yay, Jesus. I don't know. I know that those two guys became instant followers of this Jesus. And they didn't care what anybody said about him. They had a problem. They were blind. They cried out for mercy. And he answered their prayer and made them see. Any formerly blind people out there who cried out for mercy? Maybe there's some blind people in the audience today. And you're just asking Jesus for the wrong thing. Maybe you want Jesus to be your little lucky charm. To just kind of make your life go really well so that you can get your plans to work out the way you want them to. And maybe you just need to realize... That his kingdom has nothing to do with your personal comfort or the brand of a car you drive or whatever. And that your greatest problem is that you're blind and this most unusual king can make you see. Because when you read on in the story, you see that that's the whole reason he goes to Jerusalem. 
So lesson number four of answering our question as to who this is, is that, and what he's like, we see in this story that there was a stunning act of unusual ability. And it is a screaming, a screaming statement of his deity, isn't it? Chapter 21, it's number five of this little outline, a scene of unusual public popularity is the triumphal entry. But as we've already referenced, it falls apart in just a matter of a few days. You want to know who this is? Who is this? Who is this? This is the king who welcomes everybody, even in the 11th hour. This is the king who the scriptures are all about. And I'm going up to Jerusalem, and they're going to crucify me. I'm going to turn myself over to them, but I'm going to rise again the third day. That's the gospel. It's what we'll be celebrating next week. This is the king who sets the standard for humility, laying down his life for many. This is the king with a stunning Ability to make the blind see. That's who he is. That's what the Bible says. There's a couple of lessons we have to learn, I think. Number one, don't follow Jesus for the wrong reasons today. Don't follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. He's not a lucky charm. Jesus is not, he's not the lottery. He's not your pathway to better living here and now. For some around the world today, he's the pathway to martyrdom and to losing everything they have and getting rocks through the front windows of their businesses or their homes. But man, if you're blind and he makes you see, nothing else matters. Be careful not to follow the king for the wrong reasons. Secondly, it occurred to me as I was reading this that as the tide of public opinion would turn against him throughout this week and those who screamed for Jesus one week one day possibly other and and then others of them and among them screamed for Barabbas just a few short days later that somewhere along the line they became disappointed or embarrassed with him and I thought you know another lesson when I read about this unusual king is that I refuse to be embarrassed about my king he's a great king man he is a, a great king And there was a day when I was blind and he made me see. That's a great day. And there was a day when I stood before a holy God, incomplete and helpless and incapacitated. And I understood that I had a perfect Passover lamb who went to the cross and that's where God and I met. And Jesus was the intermediary. And I don't need St. Christopher or any other saint. I've got St. Jesus there. And that he did for me what I can't do for myself. I'm not embarrassed about that. And I'm only going to follow him by his grace. And thirdly, I think a good lesson for some in the room today is that you need to know about this unusual king. That it's never too late to follow him. And I do believe it's the 11th hour. And he'll pay you full wages if you come into his kingdom. 
and the great salvation, the, the treasure chest that's in the field, the pearl of great price becomes yours. Even in the 11th hour, what are you waiting for? You don't have to clean yourself up. You come to this unusual king and he does it for you. You just have to realize who you are and come to him for the right reasons. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you open our eyes to these truths? You know our hearts. You know our weaknesses and our inadequacies. And we need to see you, Lord, as this most remarkable and unusual king. Let me interrupt my prayer and with our heads bowed, would you just ask yourself if you're following Jesus for the right reasons? And if the story of Scripture as it unfolded has shed any light as to who he is, you'll notice in Scripture that there's never a chapter filled with bullet points defending Jesus for who he is. It just lays it out. This is who he is. And you either get it or you don't get it. I'm calling on you to get it today. To look to Jesus and live. To come to the cross and let Jesus do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He paid the penalty there at the cross. When he said it is finished, it meant that he completed the plan that God had for him. He had accomplished his will. They put him in the ground. Three days later, he rose again, authenticating his message. We'll talk more about that next week. But what he did was, as the Passover lamb, is he satisfied the holy demands of God's justice. And you and I could never do that apart from him. He kept the law. He was perfect. He was the spotless lamb. And his blood cleanses us from all sin. It's all driven by the love and kindness of God that he loved you and me so much that he gave his only begotten son, this unusual king, that whoever would believe in him should not perish. Look and live today, would you? Just believe that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. That's between you and God right now. And so, Father, would you just take the scales away from blind eyes now and draw people to you. Thank you for this great king, this most unusual king, May we celebrate him today for the right reasons and for our great salvation in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.